Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Afranis, and today I'm on with William Rosen. William, would you like to introduce yourself? I'd be happy to, Alex. Uh, I'm the chairman and CEO of Axial One Performance Science, a full-service performance marketing firm that utilizes advanced analytics powered by AIML to optimally activate all the drivers and channels of performance on behalf of our clients. Um, tell us more about your business. Um, so, so you said you do performance marketing and analytics. What kind of business outcomes do you deliver? Well, we really help our clients across the entire value chain. As I said, we're a full-service performance marketing firm, but we really utilize advanced analytics across all aspects of what we do. So we will help clients uh, identify their uh, highest value target market and do segmentation analytics with them. We will do pricing analytics uh, we will do brand positioning and content development and analytics against that. We will execute um, programs, help them optimize their media, um, basically help them end-to-end using all the advanced analytics tools we have to identify their high-value market, position them optimally towards it, create all the brand and marketing content they need, and then optimize their media placement to reach those folks. So we're really a full-service offering and, uh, and bring all of that value to our clients. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Adverity. Are you still measuring the success of your campaigns by guesswork and estimation? Still sticking your finger in the air to decide which campaign to spend your budget on? Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily combine and analyze data from across multiple channels so that you can get a full understanding of how each is performing. What's more, the Advanced Analytics module will give you a predictive analytics insight into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com mxa for a free demo. That's again, info.adverity.com mxa for a free demo. And now, back to the podcast. That's interesting, and, and I'm sure you do a lot of analytics yourself for for your company. So I guess that's my first question. What analytics do you look at as a leader of a company to understand your own performance? Yeah, from our, our perspective, you know, I focus on all the typical business analytics you'd expect. I would say from our perspective, you know, cost per lead, uh, customer acquisition costs are very important uh, analytics for our business. Um on behalf of our clients, you know, we're definitely, as I mentioned, segmentation analytics, pricing analytics, uh, media analytics, and then a big part of our effort is around marketing investment analytics. So marketing mix models, return on marketing investment um, uh, on behalf of our clients. So I want to ask about your company, Axial One Performance Science. How did you create the company and how? what is the origin story? Yeah, um, I'll back up a little bit. Um, prior to Axial One, I was the uh, CEO of VSA Partners, which was a design-driven branding and marketing firm known for its work on behalf of clients like Google and Nike, ABM Bev, IBM, Kimberly Clark, and others. And um, uh, was CEO till 2020 when we actually um, sold the company to a private equity firm. So that freed me up um, to pursue this next venture, which was 
Axial One. And uh, in conjunction with a couple partners of mine, uh, Scott Moore, who's the former uh, global head of analytics for Kimberly Clark, and uh, Tony Denunzio, who was a uh, uh, one of the leaders of uh, Capital One's marketing and um, was an executive vice president at iProspect, one of the world's largest performance marketing firms. The three of us really saw an opportunity to take a broader approach to performance marketing and not just focus on media and media analytics, but actually to use a full advanced analytics tool set to help clients across the entire spectrum, including analytics to help them uh, optimize their branding, their content, uh, and all aspects of their marketing. So we uh, have partnered with a private equity firm um, and we launched last year and uh, we're off to a great start working on behalf of uh, clients in the technology space, um, some packaged goods clients, a couple health and wellness brands, uh, education space, uh, connected fitness, real estate, financial services, uh, just a lot of uh, different clients have really resonated with a data analytics driven approach to branding and marketing. And so uh, we're off to a great start and uh, launched the company in conjunction with our uh, private equity partner last year and uh, and have not looked back. How did you think that your company would um, materialize and, and uh, form versus how did it actually come to be? Did, were there any differences uh, from that vision? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, we went in with what I think were some pretty ambitious goals uh, for the company and for our, our revenue and profitability. And I think one of the, the biggest surprises was just how great the demand was for this offering. So um, I was none of us were expecting this many clients and this much work as quickly as they came. Uh, obviously, a great problem to have, but um, we had to adjust. We had to scale as quickly as we could. And I think there's just a real white space, you know, frankly, in the marketplace for really data analytics driven decision making in the branding and marketing space. And I think we've tapped into that demand. So it was definitely a, a little steeper growth curve than we were expecting, uh, more business uh, more quickly. Uh, again, good problem to have. I'm, I'm not complaining in the least, but uh, I wasn't expecting us to ramp as quickly as we as we have. And, uh, you know, we just had to get our systems in place and make sure that we were set to scale. And, and we've been able to do that and uh, have been uh, motoring forward uh, ever since. That's interesting. So when you're working with a company, how do you connect to that company's data? Do you use a series of APIs? Do you work with a set of databases? What? How do you kind of get in there and provide the value? Because that's usually locked. A lot of that data is locked down. Yeah. Well, we do. We do all of the above. In addition, we you know often will do data pens you know with publicly available sources to help draw some greater conclusions with their existing data, and we will generate some uh, first party data with them where we have some interesting kind of behavioral science driven research techniques that help us get to what are the true purchase drivers for their customer set. So we do all the above. Uh, We use all the available data that they have, publicly available data, pens, and then uh, generate a lot of first party data using a real behavioral science focused approach uh, so that we can uh, make sure that everything we're analyzing and understanding is really tied to changing behavior in the marketplace. One of the big areas of opportunity that we're trying to fill is obviously the power of analytics uh, and using the advanced analytics techniques to identify pattern recognition is huge. But we think there's a huge opportunity to use that analytics tool set 
against behavioral opportunities and behavioral challenges. So we're always looking to understand what people do and what motivates decisions in the marketplace, purchases, uh, recommendations, referrals, uh, all the things that are really direct drivers of our clients' business outcomes. So we're using all the tools available and all the data sets available to make sure that we can make uh, strong recommendations that impact behavior in the marketplace uh, on behalf of our clients. And is there a consultative element to your service that you provide? Yeah, it's, it's very consultative. Um, I mean, the reality is we, we employ technology, uh, AIML platforms on behalf of our clients, but really the relationship begins with kind of a strategic and consultative engagement where we sit down with a client and help identify, you know, where is the low hanging fruit? Where are the biggest opportunities for them to move forward? You know, we take, as I mentioned earlier, a performance marketing approach, which is really all about optimization. You know, any company could identify 20, 30, 40 things that they could do and want to do. The question is what's going to get them greatest ROI? You know, what is, what are the, the, the what's the lowest hanging fruit that's going to impact results most immediately? So typically we sit down with clients, look at the landscape, do some analysis, do audits um, and uh, diagnostics, and then recommend, you know, look, of all the things you could do, you know, it probably makes the most sense to let's back up and focus on who really is your highest value target. Make sure we've identified the right segment, do a real proper marketing segmentation so that we understand who your target audiences are and what their key purchase drivers are. And then a lot of the decisions will fall from there. So it's very consultative. Uh, we use technology, but our, our focus is on partnering with our clients to help really measurably and meaningfully address their business opportunities and challenges. And then that can involve, uh, obviously, a lot of analytics, but we're always trying to tie analytics to actually in-market activation. So taking those insights and showing them how they're actionable and how that would change how you present yourself to your target audience, what marketing messaging, what offers, what incentives, how your purchase funnel would work, key touch points, how you would vary your investments across your marketing mix using marketing mix analytics. So we're always looking to make sure that we can make actionable outcome recommendations for our clients. And then we have the ability to actually execute those for clients um, should they want to partner with us in that way. So you, you named a lot of different kinds of analysis that you can do. Which which would you say is the most broadly valuable type of analysis, you know, in this, I guess, in, in 2022? Uh so far? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think we find for most customers, it really makes the most sense to step back and make sure that you've identified the highest value target market. I mean, that's kind of the first domino to fall. If you're making decisions about optimizing your media spend or optimizing your marketing mix or even optimizing your content, those are all really important. But if they're targeted against the wrong audience, you have a limiter on your outcome. And, you know, in an ideal situation, we would love to either, you know, conduct a, a, a fresh segmentation that identifies the high value audience um, against whatever KPIs we're working with on the client. It could be near term, could be long term lifetime value, could be um, the ability to advocate in the space. Um, however, we're identifying the highest value customer. It's just important to make sure that clients have that identified, whether that work was done before we were on the scene or not. Um, if that work has been done and you know that you really are targeting the right audience and those analytics are, are clear, um, I think all the other pieces fall into place much more quickly. 
at which point we then look at optimizing brand and marketing content. And that's not typically where a lot of analytics is focused. So that's a bit of a, a white space that we play in is analytic tools that can help us identify how to optimally position the brand to resonate with a identified market segment and then how to optimize that marketing content from a messaging or offer standpoint to maximize revenue capture. So once you have the segment identified, I would say it's really optimizing your brand and marketing content followed by your media optimization and your marketing mix. I remember we were talking about this in our previous call. So I'm very curious to dive into analyzing creative content and how that can, um, how that process works in terms of optimizing your content. So can you explain maybe some KPIs that you would look at or some metrics you would uh, use to identify good performing content? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, content just has been kind of a bit of a stepchild when it comes to marketing analytics. Um, as I mentioned, most, you know, performance marketing firms are really focused on media optimization, and that's really important. But interestingly, the analytics behind marketing effectiveness show that content optimization is really one of the key drivers of sales lift. In fact, about 47% of a brand sales lift is attributed to uh, to the content, and it has a 12-time multiplier uh, on profit and sales um, versus other things and other levers you can pull. So it, it really is, uh, I think, white space and untapped, um, an untapped opportunity. So what we love to do is, you know, we've developed an interesting AIML-driven platform that we use both to identify hypotheses in terms of the target audience levels of interest and then behavioral choice algorithms that help us, rather than sitting down in a focus group and asking people to explain to us why they do what they do, we know people are not always really good about telling us why they do what they do. They may not know why they do what they do. Instead, we give them choices. And by managing those choices and the variables behind them, we can do the math in the background and say, look, given these two choices, what would you pick, A or B? And if you run that scenario enough times and manage your um, your controls and your variables, you can start to identify what the real drivers are of behavioral choice. And then there's some other interesting analytic techniques like you know predictive market um, predictive choice uh, algorithms where rather than asking folks to say what they would do, you kind of use a wisdom of crowds approach um, to do predictive market assessments of what others would do. It's interesting. Statistically, it's shown that people are a lot better about predicting the behavior of others than they are often of themselves. And so by combining all these techniques into one uh, platform and approach, we can actually show what the optimal key attributes, claims, features, emotions, et cetera, are for a brand or for marketing communication that will uh, maximize revenue capture. And then we can create that into a simulator, what we call a behavioral choice simulator, where we can actually look at different combinations of messaging and brand attributes and be able to accurately predict how they're performing the marketplace in different combinations. So it enables us to go into market with a much very much clearer uh, understanding of what will perform. And then we still obviously use in-market optimization, 
but we're optimizing within a much narrower band rather than saying, let's throw five different, completely different messages and approaches out into the market and let the results start to dictate. We know the right answer is going to be in a very narrow band and we can optimize how we articulate that message or some of the more superficial elements like, you know, the exact wording, you know, is it try or buy? Is it red or green? Is it photography or illustration? We can find the best way to communicate the optimal content, but we're not having to waste the client's media dollars running media against five different uh, offers and programs only to find out that one of them was more effective and the other four uh, really weren't the best use of clients' dollars. So it's a much more efficient way for us to get into market and then optimize in market within a narrower band. I see. And it, and it all rests on the legitimacy of the customer input. And I you said something really interesting about how people are better at predicting other people's actions than they are uh, explaining or predicting their own. So can you explain a little bit more about why that's the case? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's been pretty well documented that you can sit down with groups of consumers and, you know, interview them, you know, focus group style for, for days and days. And people really have a hard time explaining why they do what they do. Um, often they don't know. And sometimes, you know, they're sort of affected by the environment around wanting to sound like they make rational decisions. And I think we know deep down that most people are really driven um, by more emotional thinking. And the rationalization is sort of a, a post hoc um, explanation of something somebody already felt like and knew that they wanted to do. And that really is this combination of, you know, behavioral science and psychology with analytics. And we think that's what helps us get better results in the marketplace is bringing to bear all these behavioral insights um, into the way we go ahead doing our analysis. So, you know, once you know that people, you can't just sit down and say, why did you do this? And what would you buy that, you know, the, the industry has, you know, hundreds of case studies of failed products where people sat in focus groups and said, yes, I'll absolutely buy new Coke or, you know, this veggie burger or whatever it is. And then the reality is that's just not what they do. And and um, it's pretty well known within the industry that that kind of research has has real big limitations. But what people do very well is they make choices and they also are very good about predicting what other people will do. So they can step back and say, look, I and they don't have to necessarily understand why. They can just understand, I will make this choice in this situation, and I predict others will make that choice in this situation. And again, by moving the variables behind the scenes, we can do the math uh, behind the curtain and identify what were the key defining factors that made one choice more um, popular or more appealing than the other. And if you do that enough times, you can start to draw conclusions and then begin to validate them. Very cool. And this makes me think about the future of analytics, because this is definitely something that is very new uh, in today's, in this year, uh, in the last couple of years, maybe. But uh, where do you see the future breakthroughs happening in marketing analytics? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, as I mentioned, one, I mean, I think optimizing content is is certainly there. Uh, integrating behavioral science, you know, and just moving beyond pattern recognition to really leveraging system one insights into what's going to really drive key purchase behaviors. But I think one of the other areas that's going to be really interesting and one of the, I'd say, future breakthroughs for uh, analytics is how it integrates with more creative processes. You know, right now, I think the industry as a whole really views 
analytics as either in opposition to a creative process or as a replacement for a creative process. Hey, we're going to have an algorithm that writes copy and does layouts and we're not going to need human beings anymore. And actually where we see the opportunity going is for advanced analytics to actually enhance the creative process versus replacing it. You know, when we can identify quantifiable insights, they can supplement and support what great content creators are already doing. And we don't think the answer is to kind of remove the human element and have algorithms create everything, um, nor do we see that as, as an opposition to a creative uh, effort. But we know that great creators really appreciate a higher level of insight. And that's what we're seeing with the tools I mentioned around content and branding, is if you bring that quantitative insight to a great designer, for example, or a great writer, you're going to get better results. You know, it's um, there's a phrase in the industry, the freedom of a tight brief, which means the more focused you can give a, a, a talent, um, the better the results you can get. And so we think harnessing the power of analytics to enhance, focus, and even support human creativity is really where the big breakthroughs are coming. And um, I'm a little less interested in the we're going to replace the human process or somehow analytics are in opposition to a, a human process. I think it's more that synergy that is um, where some of the future breakthroughs are going to be coming in the industry. So if we were to project out by 20 or 30 years, would you say that there will be a smaller fraction of people working in analytics for the same set of deliverables because of all of the robotic or automated processes there will be? Or do you think that we'll still have a really good share of humans? I, I think we're going to have a really good share of humans. I mean, as we've seen, the more technology create, you know, the more need there is for humans to either manage it, run it, fix it, you know, create the, uh, the uh, analogs and, and um, ancillary things that need to connect into it. You know, it, it's you can build a, an amazing Formula One race car, but you still need someone to drive it. And, you know, it, and I think that's an important analogy to keep in mind. There's so much technology out there. It's so powerful. Um, you know, all the walled gardens like Google and Facebook offer all these amazing AI ML tools to everybody who wants to use them. And yet there's some folks who know how to drive that race car better than others. And there are folks who can bring additional inputs and additional insights to what's available to everybody. And so I think that that human component is not going to go away. I think it's going to be really who knows how to use that technology more effectively in interesting combinations, sometimes combining new technologies, sometimes bringing fresh approaches to the technology, and sometimes just being able to leverage what the technology can do in a more effective way. And I think there is that human component that is, is going to continue to be uh, valuable for, uh, for a long time to come. Earlier, you mentioned system one. I think um, one term could be system one motivations. Can you explain what that is relative to consumer behavior? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of folks read um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow and just understand that some of the system one are sort of a lower level, you know, deeper inside the human, less uh, uh, available to the consciousness um, set of um, influences that we all have. And I think we can all give rational explanations um, for why we do what we do. But there's really a, a deeper fundamental side where you see something and you know you like it or it appeals to you. And then you may, after the fact, say, oh, here's why I like it. And that's all great. But at System One, it's really much more foundational and fundamental. And I think whenever we can use some of these techniques 
to get that deeper level of insight, um, it enables us to help motivate the kind of behaviors that we want to motivate. Helps opens people's minds to new opportunities and and new clients and businesses and products that they might be interested in, um, and helps us you know reframe some you know longstanding beliefs um, and attitudes that can be reframed um, for the benefit of uh, a new product or a, a new brand. So I think it's just really important to get kind of below the superficial and really get into understanding the real drivers of behavior versus just sort of the rationalizations of behavior. So maybe like social media, rationalization could be, I want to keep up with my friends. I want to see how they're doing. And then a system one motivation could be, I am frustrated or bored. I want to, you know, be excited and happy and <laughs> laugh maybe. And um, like a, almost like a very basic need. Yes, I think that's right. That, that the individual may not really necessarily be able to articulate at the time. But another interesting point, you mentioned social media. You know, one of our, our platforms can really leverage social conversations and insights that come out of them to help generate some hypotheses. Because one of the things that's interesting is people react very differently when they know they're in a focus group environment and being asked, what do you think about this brand of car versus that brand of car? And then you can compare that to just what they say in their real lives on social media, when they're frustrated with their car, when they bought a new car, when they love their car, when they see someone else's car, you know, you can get a, I think a better glimpse into what people are really feeling and thinking when you use real social interactions. And then you can, those can become hypotheses, which we can do some of this further testing against that I mentioned earlier. And so we love to use social media as kind of a, uh, a digital truth serum, if you will, in that people, yes, everyone's putting their best face on, but in real-time conversations, you get a real sense of how people feel about a brand or a product or a category that you don't get when you sit them down behind the one-way glass and start asking them detailed questions and everybody wants to make sure that they're giving really smart, insightful answers and presenting themselves in a certain way. When you just hear people chatting about how frustrated they are when their car broke down or um, this new car they saw, you get a much greater insight into what they're thinking and feeling and, and what their motivations are than if you just ask them, tell me what you like, tell me what you will buy. I definitely agree. One thing that comes to mind, though, is the bots online. And I, th I think that maybe in the next decade, it'll. I think it'll take some time to really come to prominence but i think i think it will uh you know uh, what, what's your perspective on reading insights from social medias that maybe uh may have some bias uh in when you're looking at an aggregate aggregate level between humans and bots no oh, totally agree and that's the reason that we just consider them inputs and opportunities for hypothesis generation versus something that we're going to draw a conclusion from. And that's a very different, you know, approach is, hey, never thought that maybe people think this way. Um, let's explore it further. But we're absolutely not going to take something that we picked up in social media at face value. And there's also a huge component of what we do that involves, you know, what we call data cleansing. You know, you've got to make sure that you're getting 
real inputs, um, that they're from real people, um, and that they're actually relevant. And you don't want things to be skewed where you just take all data at face value and don't go through that process of, of data cleansing and data quality control. Our, our analytics team spends a lot of time doing that, making sure that our inputs are actually you know, leverageable from an insight and hypothesis generation perspective. And in the data manipulation world where you're cleaning it up for an analysis, do you think that over time that data cleaning and processing uh, will become more standardized or, or more formalized? Uh, I mean, I think it certainly would help. I'll say right now, I mean, the, the, the folks who take a more methodical and detailed approach to that, I think, get better outcomes. And I think right now it's been a bit of a differentiator to us. You know, it takes a lot of extra time and it takes a lot of extra effort and, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, I think innovative approaches to make sure that the data you've got is of the quality you need. Um, so it is a bit of a differentiator for us. But I think as companies move forward and as more people get more sophisticated about the needs and, and the realization that, you know, if you have garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. And you've got to make sure that these inputs are, are meaningful and, and real and clear. Um, I think that could absolutely lead to some standardization. We've talked a lot about, I guess, the industry overall. I, I want to shift the focus to your career story. Do you want to share where you went to school? What did you study? How did you begin your career and how did you end up where you are now? I, I went to Northwestern University and um, had no intention of actually going into marketing at the time. Um, I was planning to go to law school uh, and ended up falling into a, a group of folks who were more involved in some creative ventures. Um, and I actually ended up uh, writing a play when I was still an undergraduate at Northwestern, which uh, was produced in uh, downtown Chicago. And that was really a fun experience for me um, and uh, spoiled me a little bit because I had no idea how hard it was to get a play produced at the time. I just wrote one and it got produced and it got produced a second time. And I started getting productions in New York and L.A., and I got really drawn into the, 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 the field of writing. And then as I pursued a playwriting career, I started picking up work doing marketing, uh, copywriting. And um, uh, I began really as a very strategic creative, uh, developing business building concepts for clients like McDonald's and Target uh, at a company called Frankel, um, which was a really innovative uh, multidisciplinary marketing firm founded by Bud Frankel, who had a really, uh, I think, um, very progressive vision um, around focusing marketing on business building versus just image building. And so I kind of grew up working um, at Frankel on uh, the McDonald's account, Target account, and others, and really learning all the levers you can pull to connect different disciplines to move the client's business forward. So I, you know, enjoyed several years there. I uh, ended up, you know, running the McDonald's business there and then uh, the General Motors business. And then I went out on my own as a consultant where I kind of really embraced my strategic side. Um, then I ended up, Frankel ended up being acquired by the publicist group and rolled into a much larger company called uh, Arc Worldwide. And I was fortunate uh, to be asked to become the uh, chief creative officer of uh, this new entity, Arc Worldwide, and ultimately its president, um, which was a roll-up of five companies that Publicis owned. So I really got to apply my experience in connecting digital and database and commerce marketing into one marketing services organization. Um, and we just went on a, 
a business building rampage uh, at that period, uh, connecting digital data and commerce, analytics and content. Uh, we won multiple brands at P&G, uh, Coca-Cola, Miller Coors, uh, Nestle Purina, Visa, many others, and really started to kind of fine tune my approach uh, to building business with those clients. Um, then um, I got a very interesting phone call from a private equity group that was interested in building out a marketing capability at a uh, basically a design and brand strategy firm called VSA Partners. And um, I was asked to uh, move over there and got a very uh, interesting opportunity to join as a partner and build out a marketing capability. And after a couple of years, the, uh, the board uh, asked me to step into the CEO role and uh, led the company there. We were working on Google, AB InBev, Kraft, Heinz, Allstate, Nike, McDonald's, and others. Had a really nice run there. Then, as I mentioned, we um, sold the company to a private equity group in 2020. And then I had the opportunity to kind of pull together uh, an all-star team from my past to create uh, Axial One Performance Science. And that's when I uh, reunited with uh, Scott Moore, who had been a partner of mine at um, at Arc Worldwide and who had gone on to be the global head of analytics at Kimberly Clark and uh, my other partner, Tony D'Annunzio, who we also had worked with at Arc Worldwide and then uh, and Leo Burnett. And he had moved on to Capital One and iProspect. And so we brought the group together and with some private equity uh, backing, um, launched the company. And uh, we uh, have just been off to a, a wonderful start. And we're just um, really enjoying you know, the differentiation, I think, is is what's so fun for us is that clients are saying, look, we haven't seen anyone bring this sophistication to our analytics and actually have the ability to action the insights on our behalf, monitor them and, and continue to optimize. And we're just enjoying the reception we're getting from clients and um, really enjoying the momentum that we're building together. That's very interesting. I have a couple questions from that story. So, one is, how would you recommend balancing career experience in an agency versus at a company versus starting your own business? I know that a lot of people are fans of agency experience, especially to get into a more executive role because of the varied kind of projects you may be on. But what's your take on how an individual should weigh, you know, working at an agency versus doing that same function in a company? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, there's pros and cons to both sides. Um, you know, typically in an agency environment, you'll get exposed to uh, a much broader set of client businesses and you begin to learn uh, what works and what doesn't work, but in different categories and in different business types. And that insight can really help you in your problem solving on any one individual uh, client or category or business type. So I definitely like the variety of experiences. But the opportunity to really go deep on a, a certain business um, is also really appealing. And you typically get that when you're on the client side. Although with some of the large clients agency side, like a McDonald's, the, the account can be so large that you're 100 percent focused on McDonald's or General Motors or whatever it happens to be. So you can actually get a similar experience agency side. I think it's really less critical to distinguish between the two. And I think it's more important that folks in either environment really bring kind of a left and right brain approach to what they're doing, that they're both understanding the, the analytical side 
and yet being able to think creatively about that strategy and analytics. And I think you can get that experience even uh, if you're client side working on, on one business or agency side working on many. As long as you get a chance to sort of bring that left and right brain skill set together, I think it's going to set you up for, um, for great success going forward. Especially in something like marketing analytics, it's like the epitome of, of the right and left brain coming together um, versus like a science, uh, in de- something in the sciences where it would be very um, analytical, very logical based. Um, so that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think people just often sort of forget the creative part of analytics. I mean, you know, the insights don't just present themselves. And there's actually a lot of creativity in how you go about the problem solving, how you go about the analysis, and then how you go about drawing, you know, actionable insights from them. And so I think, you know, people often think it's, I'm either left brain or right brain. And I think to be successful in this business, you've really got to have both. You've got to understand the analytics and the, you know, the more methodical quantitative side of it, but you've got to be able to bring some inspired, uh, fresh, creative approaches to get a competitive edge for yourself or for your clients. And I think that's where left and right brain, you know, coming together really, really helps. So another question I had based on your career path is that you've, you've been in different types of leadership roles. So one is that you were, you were in a C-suite position at, uh, at a business that you didn't start. And, and now you're at a, uh, in a C-suite position at, at a business that you did start. And I think those are probably pretty different experiences. I'm curious, first, how was the transition going from non-executive to executive in another in a business you didn't run? And then how was the uh, experience going from a leadership position uh, in, in another company to a leadership position in your own company? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Alex. I mean, I'll say the transition to the executive role was was fairly smooth for me because I had a lot of ideas about what we could and should be doing. So even when I wasn't technically an executive, you're still thinking about the business. You're in the trenches, you're doing the work, and you're saying, boy, you know what? If we did it this way and if we did it that way and what if we did this, we could get a, an edge. We could help our clients. And so part of, you know, I mentioned this upbringing I had at, at Frankel and, and the focus there was really what can you do to move the business forward bar none? There were no limits put on what that meant um, other than legal and ethical, you know, and beyond that, it's like no holds barred. And so I kind of grew up thinking, where can you get an edge? What can you do? And I really internalized that. And as I was, you know, coming into a new company, an existing company, you know, I was thinking, boy, is this the way we should be working or are there opportunities? And I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. It was very um, uh, unusual to have, you know, analytics folks and strategy folks working very closely, data scientists working with creatives. And I felt that it was, you know, as a creative who was very strategic, I always felt that I got a lot of insight from the data scientists who helped me understand what was going on instead of just giving me a 50-page report that could actually, you know, brainstorm with me about, hey, based on what we're seeing, this would work, this wouldn't work. 
And I found that I got a lot of value from connecting directly with a data scientist. And so as I looked at the organization, I'm like, wait a minute, why aren't we connecting, you know, our analytic thinkers with our creative thinkers and let them problem solve together? You know, why is our technology group over here? And why aren't they part of the conversation now? So we have somebody representing data, somebody representing technology, somebody representing design, a true cross-functional team problem solving together. And I found that, you know, those different perspectives led to these big paradigm shifts where, wait a minute, we've got a big idea now. And so this kind of desire to always optimize and improve performance led me to look at you know, operational changes and structural changes and business process changes and approaches. And so it was a very seamless transition into an executive role because I was always thinking about how could we do what we do better? How could we be more effective on behalf of our clients? And, you know, when I got the executive title, it just really allowed me to make those decisions without having to go sell somebody, you know, upstairs on it. You know, it was my call to make. And that was great. Um, but of course, there's always somebody upstairs, even when you're a C-suite, you've got a board of directors that have to be aligned with your vision. But it was a it was a very seamless transition for me because it just allowed me to execute the vision that I had and the opportunities that I saw when I saw them. Um, and, you know, every experience I learned something from, um, no, no doubt about it. I mean, Arc Worldwide was part of Leo Burnett and the publicist group. These are large companies. You know, you can't turn the Queen Mary on a dime. So you've got to make your case about why you want to do what you need to do. And it takes time. You can't quite be as nimble, but you have to learn how to convince others um, to share your vision and why it's right and rationalize it and share the data that's going to show that this is the right thing to do. Uh, and that was a great experience working within a large publicly traded company. Um, when I was at VSA Partners, the company already existed. Uh, it was smaller and, and private, so we could be a little more nimble. And um, I could start to evolve that company into a vision where I saw opportunities to grow. Um, and then in my new venture, Axial One, where we really started Ex Nilo, um, all that those skills that I developed in those other uh, engagements came to bear in that I wanted to be clear about my vision, clear about where the opportunity was in the marketplace, clear about you know, what types of folks we wanted in the organization and who we would be partnering with. And, you know, I always liked doing the work. So it was never a problem that, you know, we were going to be more hands-on um, because that was actually part of our vision is, you know, some of the best folks in the industry at the large organizations aren't really touching work. They're not helping clients succeed. And we wanted to set up a firm that had those best folks actually doing client work, actually making recommendations, actually using all their experience on behalf of clients instead of managing spreadsheets of people who manage spreadsheets of people who do work. So it really kind of all came together. And I think this was the moment where performance marketing needed to make a paradigm shift. And that's what we're doing at Axial One is just thinking about, you know, performance marketing beyond the media optimization only. And let's make sure we have all the analytic and strategy and technology and creative tools we need to execute that on behalf of clients. And I'm learning every day. I mean, if, if you're not learning and once you stop learning, you're, you're dead. And uh, I think it's just important to always have this optimization mindset, which is however successful you are, you want to be more successful tomorrow. And that means thinking about challenges in a, in a fresh way and continuing to evolve your organization to make sure that it's always on the bleeding edge and able to do the, the best, highest ROI work on behalf of your clients.
Yeah. Uh, you mentioned optimization a few times. What is your um, go-to way to measure uh, the performance of a test when you run one in a market? How would you go about setting it up? Yeah, I, I, there's no single solution to that one. I mean, obviously, every client has a different set of KPIs. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're clear on how our clients define success. And if we're dealing with a CEO or a CMO, you know, how their board of directors uh, define success, because that's where they're ultimately accountable. We want to understand all those aspects and all those KPIs. And then we can go ahead and make a recommendation about an experimental design. And that that is something that we think is a real differentiator for us as well, which is instead of a one size fits all, here's how we do A-B testing or here's our way to optimize. We actually like to use folks with a strong background in experimental design and, and test design to make a very bespoke recommendation that given this situation, here's how we recommend testing. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we don't just want to throw everything, you know, against the wall and see what sticks. It's just really inefficient on behalf of clients. So we think we have an obligation to use analytics to make sure that we've already sort of narrowed the field as much as we can and know that we're in this very tight range of optimal solutions and we're going to just get them focused in in market. So before you're spending big media dollars, we've already done the analysis. We know what's going to work with our simulators. Now we're validating and refining and fine-tuning. But we always develop a, a unique, custom, bespoke experimental design for every situation because every client's situation, budget, competitive set, timing, challenges, opportunities are different. So I, I can't say there's one go-to way, but I do have a go-to team uh, that is uh, is focused on experimental design. And um, I believe that given uh, the right inputs, they can always make a recommendation that'll help us get to an optimized outcome as quickly and efficiently as possible. However, those uh, KPIs are defined by our client. Do you ever run into challenges with measuring data or tests that are run through other uh, third parties, like let's say on Facebook or some social media that will say, you know, we'll, we'll do your attribution for you and send you the results or, um, or maybe more broadly that they'll make claims about the attribution, uh, that customers are getting. But then when you try it, it doesn't have the same effect. I think there's starting to be a little bit of whispers for uh, around how online advertisers, you know, may, may be propping up some of these returns that they're uh, talking about. Do you have any experience with um, pressure testing some of those tests uh, that maybe you're trying to get the data for, but you don't have all the data or uh, something like that? Absolutely. Um, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world want you to throw all the information to their platform and they'll tell you what works. And um, they're making it, you know, frankly, harder and harder to not do that. But this sort of gets back to the comment I made earlier about, you know, who can drive the Formula One race car better. Um, when you have a, a, a really advanced, you know, media optimization analytics team, you know how to use the platforms to get the best results. And you know that if you have smaller sample sizes or different types of data sets, that you're going to get a skewed result from a Facebook or a Google. And you need to know how to make sure that you've got critical mass and that you have constructs in place in your media flights, for example, that are going to give you more uh, accurate and verifiable results and let the algorithm that you know Facebook or Google is frankly forcing you to use have what it needs 
to be as effective as it can be. So absolutely managing that is, is part of the game. And, you know, we, we have on, on many occasions taken over client businesses where they've worked with some very reputable firms in the past who have just been kind of victimized by that. And one of the ways that we step in and help our clients get better results is that we know how to use the technology that the Facebooks and the Googles are offering to make sure that we don't get those skewed results or that we can quickly um, uh, respond if we think that those results are not accurate um, so that we can optimize our client spend uh, in market as quickly as possible. So it's absolutely an issue. And, you know, the, the algorithms are changing, you know, daily, if not hourly. The tool sets are changing and you've got to stay on top of what's being offered and really know uh, how to drive that race car on behalf of your clients. Or if you just sort of turn it over to them, uh, you really have no way of knowing that you're getting the uh, uh, optimal return on any given spend. I think that we we should spend the rest of the time discussing entrepreneurship. And I, I want to ask you, as somebody who's created a successful company, what advice do you have around how to build your own company and entre- entrepreneurship in general? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think everybody needs to be a little less quick to just sort of follow the, the already blazed trail. I think the big opportunities for entrepreneurs sometimes involve going against the market uh, or changing the paradigm. You know, we went against the market when we were at Arc Worldwide, part of Leo Burnett. You know, it was a time when everybody was pure play. They were pure play digital or pure play commerce or pure play data. And everyone zigged and we zagged and actually created a company that connected all of them. And, And the reaction was, what are you doing? There's no way people want digital specialists only and commerce specialists. We're like, yeah, but you know what? Commerce and digital and data all are connecting and you're giving partial solutions and we're going to zag while you're all zigging. And I think that was very important to actually have the confidence in your vision to go against the market. So I think that's an important important lesson for any entrepreneur, which is you've got to find an opportunity and you can't be afraid to do what you believe is right, even if it's going against the trend, because many times going against the trend can be exactly the best thing you could possibly do. Um, the other piece of advice I'd give is you've got to be willing sometime to make a paradigm shift. It's not just I'm going to zig while everybody zags. It's I'm going to think about this business in a different way. And I think that's what we did at Axial One. We're going to think about performance marketing more broadly. We're going to use advanced analytics against parts of the marketing mix that others are not. And we're going to bring a performance mindset to branding. We're going to bring a performance mindset to uh, targeting, to marketing, to a marketing spend optimization, to commerce. And I think that kind of paradigm shift is a really uh, important concept. I, uh, I was fortunate enough to give a TED Talk um, a couple of years ago, and that was what I talked about was the power of the paradigm shift and what that really means when you can see things differently. So it's the difference between you know evolution and revolution. You can continue to make little tweaks to existing models, but I think if you want to really go for it as an entrepreneur, you can't be afraid to just shift the paradigm and change the business model and change the offering in a way that seizes an opportunity that you see. And I think when you do that, you can find opportunities for leverage 
where you can outperform and where you can put tools together in a way that others are not. And um, if your ears to the uh, ground and you know what the market is looking for, um, there's no reason to be afraid to make that kind of paradigm shift. And I think that aligns with a clear vision and an unmet need, which I think is really important for every entrepreneur. You know, be clear about what you're trying to do. Be clear about the needs you're trying to meet and make sure you've got a plan to achieve it. And if you're doing that, I don't think you need to be afraid if it's going against the trend uh, or shifting the uh, paradigm completely. Uh, you know there's a need that's not being met and you've got a plan to achieve it. And uh, I would encourage all entrepreneurs out there to, to go for that um, in, a, in a very disciplined way, but not be afraid if their business looks different than others, because I think that kind of revolution is what drives real entrepreneurial success. Yeah, that sounds very wise. What's your take on recommending a type of business to go after if you're just starting in the entrepreneurial world? Yeah, I think I think it's, you know, obviously it depends on the category and it depends on the individual, you know, dynamics within a, a category, a product, um, and and any shifts in timing and geography and all that. So it's hard to say this is the one way to go or this is the other. But what I would just encourage entrepreneurs to do is is focus. I think, you know, focus is critical. You know, trying to do too much um, all at the same time is is the kiss of death. And, you know, strategy is 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 making choices. You can't do everything. You can't put your resources, your time, your effort, your blood, sweat and tears against too many things at one time. And so I would definitely encourage entrepreneurs to just start more narrowly, whether it's software or it's hardware or it's physical or it's, you know, it's digital I'm less worried about one way or the other than I'm worried about folks who just won't make a strategic choice. Make a choice, commit to it, focus your effort on it, and make it successful. And then, obviously, you've got to be able to pivot if if you're not getting traction. And boy, you know what? I went down the software route, and I'm seeing a hardware opportunity. That's great. I mean, that we all know stories like that where great companies have multiple pivots before they land where they need to be. But focus. Just don't try to boil the ocean. Don't do everything at once. Be very clear, be very focused, and be very narrowly uh, defined initially. You can always expand once you've had success, but you know, be willing to make that strategic choice and that strategic decision. It's not a strategy to say I'm going to be everything to all people. Um, it's just not tenable. So you know, have the discipline to make a really focused strategic choice. That's very wise. Do you have any books or... Uh, any resources you'd recommend uh, around business, marketing, analytics, entrepreneurship, anything anything we talked about today? Well, you know, I would say I'm a little biased uh, to the book I wrote, The Activation Imperative. Um, so thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called The Activation Imperative, How to Build Brands and Business by Inspiring Action. And um, you can get it uh, pretty much everywhere books are sold, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, and it was a book that I wrote a few years ago based on a Harvard Business Review article I wrote with my co-author, uh, Professor Lawrence Minsky, who's a marketing professor at uh, Columbia College here in Chicago. He and I wrote a Harvard Business Review article, and then we were asked to turn it into a, a full-length business book. And it's really about focusing on action and how do you inspire action in the marketplace. So um, we've gotten a lot of good uh, feedback on it. I think that's a a really helpful read for anybody who's looking to make an impact in the marketplace because there is so much written about 
image and perception and branding and, you know, the uh, operations. And there's really remarkably little written about how do you activate behaviors in the marketplace. And I was very flattered. Uh, Philip Kotler, the uh, distinguished professor at, at Kellogg Graduate School of Management, uh, wrote a nice review of the book, which is actually on the back cover, uh, where he talks about you know, the need to activate your brand and activate your idea and that this is what he said was the best book he had read on how to activate your brand. And so uh, I would definitely encourage folks to to check out The Activation Imperative. I think it's a, uh, a very helpful book. Um, and then uh, in terms of books not written by me, um, I, I also love uh, uh, the Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow book, which I think is really helpful to kind of understanding how decisions are made. So those would probably be my uh, my top two choices. Very cool. I'll put links to your TED Talk and your book in the description for this podcast so everyone can check it out. Thank you. I appreciate that, Alex. I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, this has been such a great discussion. I want to thank you again, William, for coming on. My pleasure. I, I've really enjoyed it, Alex, and happy to chat anytime. Awesome. Thanks so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.